Hey, Chrissy here. I am a landscape architect and the owner of Kismet Design. I am a very process-driven designer, and I love sharing what I do and how I do it with anyone who's interested. Reaching your true potential and achieving your own personal goals will not happen by chance. You have to set your intentions, make a plan, and do the work. Thank you for joining me to nerd out on design. Don't forget to subscribe and to share too. Let's create something great together. I have the great pleasure of welcoming Lisa Bauer to the podcast. She is a brilliant landscape designer, certified professional horticulturist, and the owner of Chartreuse Landscape Design. She works in the greater Seattle area and has been featured in Seattle Times on multiple occasions, among many other publications. Many of her designs play with the composition of clean, crisp lines of hardscape elements contrasted with big, bold, lush foliage. Be sure to check out her website. We get to talk about the use of natives, a touch on sustainability, and of course, some of our plant favorites, and the satisfaction of being a landscape designer. All right, so thank you so much, Lisa, for joining me today. This is fantastic. It's great to be here, Chrissy. Thank you so much for having me. I love being in your office. It's really, it's it's a beautiful office. Well, thank you. Um, To start, I'd love for you to share what brought you to the landscape industry, because like so many of our colleagues, this was not your first career. Correct. So, you know, I think it happened, well, it happened organically, but um, my mom was a very avid gardener when I was a kid. And um, so I think that influenced me. And I, in my first house, I did a lot of pruning and I just, I think I learned probably most of that from my mom, but um, I got the, I had the opportunity to do a garden when I bought my first house in my twenties. And then when I, uh, my husband and I got married, we bought another house and I had a clean slate. And so, um, and I also had children, young children. And so um, my break during the day was to go out into the garden and, since there was nothing there, I would do things like plant big, you know, patches of sunflower seeds. And so just kind of by virtue of me doing that and, and just being in awe of like having a forest of sunflower seeds or sunflowers, um, I really sort of got caught up in the whole magic of, of plants. So that's kind of how I got my first taste of it. Um, but then really, um, it was my sister Gretchen Bauer, who is also a landscape designer in Seattle. She, Um, when she was starting her business, she had a client and she felt pretty confident about her space design abilities, but she didn't really feel confident about her planting design. And so, although I wasn't, didn't have a formal education, she asked me to help her with it. And so I did. And that was sort of my first job was working with my sister. Um, and although I, you know, I, I think I did an okay job at it. I really felt like a fraud because of course there's like, thousands of plants. And so I really was only working within the sort of narrow palette of my own garden. And so that is kind of when I went back to school. And that's kind of when I really started realizing, wow, I love this field. Um, But it started with my love of plants. I think we all do that a little bit. I mean, I, I feel the most comfortable and the most confident in using plants that I've had myself or I've used over and over and over again. Like I always get a little scared when I'm using something new because I don't want it to not perform the way I expect or to fail or we've had things that 
you just really don't thrive or get three times as big as I thought they would. And you never know. Definitely. Definitely. The other piece of it too, is that it, like in my child, like you always go back to your childhood, right? And you think about, well, what did you like to do when you were a kid? And so I, I had a dollhouse <laughs> and I loved moving the furniture around. And then I, even from the dollhouse, I went to my, my mom's house and my dad's house. And, and when they would go on business trips, I would change the house around <laughs> and I would literally move like the dining room into the living room, the living room into the dining room. And I don't know how I did it. I was a small kid, but I would get on my knees and move things around on rugs and everything. <laughs> and so I always had a fascination for space design. I mean, I loved it. And then I would go to the garden and I would cut all these bouquets and I put bouquets in every room and in the bathroom. And, um, so I think that whole, um, idea of like space planning and just making things beautiful, it happened at a really young age for me. So really I always wanted to be an interior designer, but in college, I didn't go down that path. I went down a different path, but, um, so it was always there, you know, the space part of it too. I think most designers have, if they look back, they can find that they've had that designer quirk, designer gene, whatever in them in some manner. Yeah, definitely. And just a love for beauty, right? Like, yeah. um, I used to love architecture digest <laughs> as a kid. Like, can I please have that for Christmas? It was, I was eight or something or nine. I think I was nine years old. And, and just that whole looking into these beautiful environments were just such a fantasy to me. And I just thought, I just, I just lived in those magazines. So I think it's just the overall love of beauty and yeah, that sort of sucks you in. That's the driver for me. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, but so your first career was very different. Um, but what was it that sparked you to make that change? Well, I definitely had come to kind of the end of my um, textile and clothing um, design business. I was just so stressed out and I was actually doing really well. I had like my best sales ever on the last year of my business when I decided I would close it, but it was so much stress. I mean, the garment business it goes so fast. You're, you're basically designing a new line as you're shipping that season. And, you know, you have to do at least two lines a year. And I just really physically just became, I was getting sick from it. So that's really why I decided to end that career. It was just not um, healthy for me anymore. So, but what I really loved about that career was um, that my, my garment line was all garment dyed. So it was really all about colors and colors next to colors. And so like my, my favorite part of that business was sitting there with a fan deck of colors and, and, and matching them up against each other to get the good combinations. And that was just like, being on drugs for me. <laughs> I loved it. So that, and then also just being around fabrics and textiles. Um, I think that sort of was the whole, why I thought, Oh, I love interiors, but, um, yeah, just texture on texture to me is just, um, it's just a wonderful, fun thing to do. So then I, I was actually looking at interior design schools and then I, but I also went to Edmonds and then my sister was doing this business. And when I interviewed at Edmonds Community College and I talked to Polly Hankin there, she was the director at the time, um, she really sort of demystified the whole thing for me. And she sort of like made it seem really easy. And she said, Lisa, you know, you could always do just containers for wealthy people. <laughs> she goes, it's not a big deal. <laughs> so she kind of allowed me to just sort of think, well, I can do this. You know, it's not because I was really afraid of more of the technical aspects, I think, of the drafting and the the construction and all that, because I really didn't have any experience with that or the CAD. Like I know you had 
a lot of CAD before you even you know, left high school. But um, I was really intimidated by that. And also, too, the, the idea of learning that many botanical names was intimidating because I was not that great at foreign languages. And I thought, oh, this is just another foreign language. <laughs> but um, anyhow, so I just took my first class at Edmonds and I took the classes that I would I thought I would like the least because I thought, OK, well, then if I don't like it, then I'll just do something else. But of course, I loved it. I loved the drafting. It was so fun. It was with pencil, you know, graphite. And then um, when I had to take the idea, I thought, oh, I'm just going to, this is going to be so hard. But, you know, just by virtue of falling in love with the specimens, it was so easy. And I just ate it up. And even up to the very last class that I took, which was I think, pest management, which nobody wants to take <laughs> because it's about chemicals. I mean, even that was fascinating. So anyhow, that's, that's kind of how I got sucked in. I didn't even really think I was going to get the degree. And five years later, I had it. So, and I, it also took me a really long time to go through the program because um, I had kids and I could only take so many classes at a time, but I, I really valued that time because it really allowed me to sort of sink my teeth into each class and to the material and to really get to know it and really understand it. So I feel fortunate that I could spend five years getting a two-year degree. <laughs> well, that's nice also because then, like you said, you've got the time to actually digest it more instead of like pushing through as fast as you can. Because yeah. then you, you you kind of get the skim coat and a lot of that. I mean, I look back at some of the classes I took in college. I'm like, I really wish I would have paid more attention. Not only did I not have enough time, but I didn't have the context where if you're, if you've got a little bit more time and you can really digest it more, I think you get more context out of it instead of just, oh, I have to learn this. Let's move on to the next lesson. Absolutely. And I had already started doing some landscape design in school and my sister kind of got me started. And then I... Um, I had the opportunity to do a, a project at the school. I had just like taking my first class in drafting and the, my kids school where they were going to redo their playground. And so everybody knew I was in this program. And so they're like, Oh, maybe Lisa can do it. And so I, I drafted up a plan and they loved it. And I, that's kind of what got me started. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, definitely having, projects while I was in school really helped me to just, everything was so interesting because I could apply it instantly. So that's nice. Yeah. Um, so your work, you do a lot of really like bold use of textures and tropicals. And it's really inspiring to me. I personally am terrified of tropicals, um, really intimidated by them. Um, but it makes sense, you know, in hearing you talk about like textiles and the colors and you really like, the, the textures that you get out of tropicals and some of the plants that you use, it really, like, that makes perfect sense. It really kind of, I understand where that, that desire and that inspiration comes from for you. What does your process look like in terms of like plant layering and selecting those hardy tropicals for our area? Such good questions. And so I do, this is the big misnomer. And that is that there's a hardy tropical because I guess there well, is, but you know what really all it is, is just that these are plants with big shiny leaves that are hardy in our area and that's it. <laughs> and so I guess, I mean, you can definitely kind of, um, I think people do like they say, Oh, Lisa, you're so good at these tropical looking gardens and it, and it, I do have a passion for it. I think, um, when I was young too, I also went to Hawaii and Mexico when I was, you know, pretty young. And I just remember being in a, a jungle, feeling that the big foliage and 
like, oh my gosh, this is where I want to live. Like, I just need to move here and I can be happy for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, and so that that look, you can definitely do that in the Pacific Northwest because we have such a, a lush, accommodating climate. And so really they're just um it's a it's plant pairings with plants that have those qualities. And so the one thing, you know, the ubiquitous sort of tricky carpus fortunae or the Chinese one mile palm is definitely something that I use that will sort of just bring it home, you know, for, okay, we're going to do a, a, like a fantasy tropical garden in your backyard. Um, so I do use that, but really there are things like bamboo, um, Batsia japonica. Those are all like plants that we see here all the time. I mean, there's such a uh, really important Japanese garden influence in our area. So I mix all of these plants together and it's just kind of what's next to the other thing that kind of makes it really work. So, um, you know, I do the same process. In fact, you know, I have a, you know, maybe a, I would say, you know, not all of my clients like want that look. And so I do the whole array, but the process is just the same. It's just the same. I'm just looking at, okay, zone, you know, seven to nine <laughs> and not so much in the nine really. I actually stays, you know, seven, eight. Seattle has some pockets too, microclimates that um, I really do have learned where I can put certain plants. And like, um, for example, a Chinese windmill palm, it does so much better if it's protected. So if it's not getting wind blown, if it's not on like a South slope, with wind coming at it all day long, it will just look better because it won't be all wind burned. So I kind of know where to, to, to put these plants, but um, in any case, uh, I, I think it's just picking those plants, like even a evergreen magnolia, it looks very tropical. It's from the South of this country. So evergreen magnolias with the fatsias and like even a spare hydrangea, which is not nearly a tropical thing, but it's kind of exotic looking. So just kind of, Pairing those things together is what kind of creates that look, that lush look, and then all of the layers. And so really when I meet clients for the first time, I tell them, okay, so you've seen some of my portfolio and you kind of know that I like dense plantings, but really my policy is there's a no bare ground <laughs> policy in the way that I plant. So there's not going to be any bare earth when I'm done. And, and it doesn't mean that things are going to be um, overstuffed or crowded, but there's just going to be full layers everywhere. So do you, do you find in some of the selections of some of the more tender things that you have to be selective about what clients are capable and willing to put in the effort to, you know, take care of them over the winter, especially if we have a, a harsher winter, like this winter, I mean, we had yeah. an earlier freeze than normal. Definitely. I mean, that's always, well, planting is always like, scary in the winter time just with any kind of garden but um there's there aren't that many things that i will put into a garden for a client unless i tell them ahead of time there's a risk with this plant like even laura petalum there's a risk with this plant but it's pretty enough that i think that this certain spot will be sheltered enough and we will make sure to mulch really well um, but it may not survive or it may not survive unless we can get it through a couple of years where it can get established so that's true of most plants anyway, but I think the one plant that I can think of that I've been using more regularly um, lately is the Musa Bostu, which is the um, banana, the hardy banana. So that plant, um, I've been using it a lot um, and I consider it a perennial. So it actually is hardy 
um, here. Like even if it freezes, it will sort of melt to the ground like other perennials, um, but it will come back the next year. But having said that, I'm now putting it in for people, especially that want a really lush look, but um, if they need to have instant gratification, <laughs> like I have a client and we took out some really big Leland cypresses that were you know, really dead, but so she's exposed to her neighbors now. And so, you know, the client was like, oh, we need, you know, big shrubs. And I'm like, well, you don't want to put it in Laurel and you don't want to put in a Prentice Lusitanica. You, you know, let's get something that's more like a, a strawberry tree that you'll be, have longer longevity and be better over the long term. But in the interim, we will use this banana tree. And they were, they were so excited about that because it is so exotic looking. So with those, I just tell people ahead of time, okay, this is the process. If you want to keep your stalks really long, because if you wrap them in the winter time, um, before it really freezes hard. So I just wrap with bubble wrap a couple times around, and then I put some burlap over the top so it doesn't look horrible. Um, then, um, you can, it'll make, it'll last through the winter and it won't melt to the ground. And that way, when it, in the spring, the leaves start to pop out of the top and at like five feet or wherever it lasts, you know, wherever you put it in, whatever height it was, I cut the leaves off and then it will start from there. So that will give you those big, tall, exotic banana trees that you're looking for. So I always just tell people ahead of time, this is the benefit and this is the cost. Can you do that? That cost? <laughs> and most people always say, oh yeah, that's easy. Or they'll have, or I'll help their landscape to, um, professional learn how to do that. So that's how I, I work with that. And I love but, the faces that you put on them. <laughs> I don't even know how that got started. I think it was that, you know, I had these silly totems in my yard and I did put the burlap because I didn't want to see the bubble wrap, but then I was just like, oh, those look like totem poles. And so then I thought, okay, it's the holidays. This is my little pagan <laughs> totem pole thing. So I got, and I use only materials that are sort of in, from nature. Like I don't use like plastic button eyes. I use wood or I use, you know, cut rounds or something, but anyway, it's really fun. And I do it during the time of year when I'm cleaning up the garden anyway. And so I use all the dregs that I'm cutting away. I just like will bind really quick and wire and just throw it onto the, <laughs> I love them onto those totems. So anyway, and then sometimes we uplight them too with like holiday lights at the bottom. So they glow so you can see them at night, oh, which fun. is kind of fun. So anyway, it's just another focal point for nighttime. Enjoyment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so some of those things that are a little bit more tender, um, there's a couple good resources for more tropical type things locally, but do you find that seasonally they're harder to find and harder to source for clients? I would say yes and no. Like some, um, most of the bones of the, my plant palette that like, if I'm doing a hearty tropical look garden for somebody, then I definitely have my standard go-to plants, which are not hard to get. Um, except like I would say windmill palms, not in the winter time because they're just not bringing them up from California at that point. So those have to wait, but pretty much all of the other bones plants and a lot of the ground covers, like Bezia is another plant that I use as a ground cover a lot. That's very widely available now. So I, I would say like maybe seven years ago, some of the plants that I was using was were really hard to get, um, but not anymore. Like even um, hibiscus mochuetos, which is that swamp mallow, that's a great hardy tropical looking plant um, that actually grows in the Midwest. That's available now. But there are certain things, and I guess I, I never really, um, I will use them for clients that can wait because there are some things that like 
I've been looking for a jelly palm, which is called, um, what is the botanic on that? Abudia capitata. I've been looking for that for a year now and I have one in my yard and it's absolutely gorgeous and it's hardy here, um, but I can't get it. So you're right. Yeah. There are some things that I, I just won't specify, but I'll leave a space for in people's garden if I can find it. And if I can't, then I'll like, you know, a year goes by and they're like, well, we really do want something in that spot. <laughs> then I'll fill it with something else that I can't get. Yeah. Well, but, I'm sure every client's a little different. Like some are like, oh, you can't find it now. Let's get something different. And others are like, oh, it's worth waiting for. Yeah, exactly. It just really depends on the client. So, and usually when I do a garden, people know that it's going to be, you know, pretty plant intensive. I mean, it'll be hardscape intensive too, but the plants are equally as important. And so I'll tell them, you know, what makes a garden really, really special is that, you know, we're going to do all of the structural plants and all of the fill-in plants, um, all the ground covers, and then a certain number of perennial or dynamic change plants will go in but then it's going to be probably two to three years later that we'll start really tweaking the garden and making it super special with you know some pretty exotic plants that are really hard to find so i always try to set expectations and some people want that or know what that means or care about it but i have other clients very into gardens and really are excited about the whole development because we live in this world of um, instant gratification. I mean, Amazon has just changed everybody's expectations. Yeah. And so, um, but I tell people, you know, it takes at least three years for it to even look like it's a garden. Um, it takes longer than that just to sort of really finesse it and to move things around so that things are really working well together. And then to add those special things like in my garden. So I've got this plant called Roscoa family jewels, and it just, it looks sort of, orchid-like, has dark leaves. It's absolutely scrumptious. Um, I think I got it at Far Reaches, which I love to give a plug to because they're an incredible plant resource. Um, but so it's things like that, that I, I can't always just go run out to Far Reaches Farms or, you know, Wincliffe and grab <laughs> some really special plants. So I will just, um, you know, when I have the opportunities, I just tell people just I will get them when I can and just be patient. And there are a lot of clients that totally understand that. So, and that's, that's, you know, that's enough time too for the garden to, to really, really hone it and to make it special. And it's, it's all those little special things that make it different and make it something that people, you know, remember like, wow, that was a, what is that plant? I mean, it's very rare too, that we're in a garden where we go, what is that plant? So it's kind of fun to do that for people who are interested in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, I think that that's an added kind of touch point and relationship builder having an mm -hmm. extension of the installation process instead of, okay, here's your design. We work together so much installation is done. And that's like, okay, see you later. And then you don't see them again. Um, I mean, like I do six and 12 month walkthroughs with clients, but beyond that, like, unless I'm doing a, another phase or something, usually like that's kind of the end where if, if you're constantly kind of adding some tweaks and, and building, um, that's kind of nice. That's fun. It gives that extra, extra little bit and extra layer of artistry to the, to the garden because gardens are static by any means. Definitely. And I, I feel very lucky that, um, I do tend to get people who are so like into plants and they're into gardens. I um, mean, they may not know anything about plants, but they know that they want that. They have an appreciation so, for it. Yeah, they have an appreciation. And so I feel so lucky because I like to build these relationships. And like I have one garden right now that I did 
um, a year and a half ago and it's, um, it's up on Cougar Mountain and I love these clients so much. They're the nicest people ever. And they sort of handed this garden over to me and it had been done 25 years ago by Dan Boroff, who's an amazing designer, um, but it had really got, become overgrown. And so when I took this project on, I knew it would be a long project anyway. Um, but I, I was there the other day and the, the, I've hired this wonderful, um, well, Trisha Avey from Fernway Gardens who is helping to develop this garden with me. But one of her um, crew members said, oh, wow, Lisa, wow, do you, are you like, do you get to keep coming back to this garden? Are they like having you back like forever? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but I, I'm definitely coming back as, as long as they'll have me. And, and it, this garden is, it's, it's taking, it's only been like a year and a half, but um, I still feel so committed to, to making it into something really special. And it's, the bones are there. I mean, it's just, it's going to be fantastic. So yeah, I feel super lucky that I, I get these projects because well it's really gratifying to see things as they progress and grow and at multiple seasons because you don't always get to see i mean you can envision it and you know what the what the idea is but being able to actually see it throughout those seasons and throughout the years as things mature and i think for me it helps me be a better designer being able to see those things and anticipate oh that didn't perform the way i thought it would or yeah this actually looks even better than I thought this time of year where I thought it was going to be kind of boring or even seeing those plant combinations that sometimes happen intentionally and sometimes happen by accident. Um, you get to see more of it because there's only so much you can do in your own space to really explore and, and see those little nuances. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's also dependent upon soil and conditions, right? So like in my garden, I think I have tried so many, like hundreds of plants and my people who've seen my garden are like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, does she have every plant that's possible to grow in this area? Um, and so I, I do experiment a lot in my own garden, but then I try at the same plant combinations in someone else's garden. And of course, you know, they may have clay or whatever, or hard pan and, um, and it behaves so differently. So I do always say, okay, well, I'm going to try this here, but it may respond differently. And hopefully it doesn't respond like and take over things, which has, I've seen that happen too. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I told you this is a fine plant and it's okay. We're getting that out of here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I make lots of, I learned so much from just, um, like you said, going back and seeing how plants respond differently in different um, situations. Yeah. So, and then also if I'm going to experiment on somebody, I always tell them <laughs> like, this is a new plant for me, but I'm so obsessed with it. So can we try it? <laughs> yeah. Do you mind if it, it may die, you know? So I do, I do make that clear. <laughs> you know, I think that that's, that's fun. And I think that for clients, like seeing and experiencing that passion that you have for things just builds on the, the fun of the experience for them. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, that's the, a big part of what I enjoy doing is um, just the client involved. And so if I have a really good relationship with the client, which in most cases I do, it's, it's just so great to, um, to teach them about their garden. And, and if I'm not teaching them, I'm teaching their, their landscaper how, how to take care of it. But um, just to get them involved with it is really, it's really satisfying. I think that's, that's the main, um, I don't know, that's one of the main reasons why I do this is, you know, it's for the overall big picture of getting people involved with nature. And and it's an amazing how fast it can happen too. Like I, I had a, my, one of my first big jobs and this was after I had done a garden show and um, I was working on 
South Slope of Queen Anne. It was, I was really kind of intimidated with this job anyway. And it was Avalon, Northwest Landscapes. I'll give him a shout out <laughs> because he helped me and he was invaluable on that project, which he is on many projects. But we, we had installed, um, the, some of the plants were in, but not all of them. And we had just turned on this water feature. It was a bubbling water pot. And, you know, it was kind of an exposed area, lots of sun. And that, so we all left that day and then I got this text on the way home and the, the homeowner said, oh my gosh, Lisa, there is a hummingbird on the water pot. <laughs> and she was just over the moon about it because she had never seen that in her garden before. And so it was just by virtue, it's just a small, like, okay, we're going to put some water in your garden and hopefully, you know, birds will come and it's that fast and people notice nature coming to their gardens that quickly. And that's really cool to me. I'm going to stick a pause right here in the conversation that I had with Lisa Bauer. We spent quite a long time chatting and discussing process, our love of plants, theory of design, all of that. And this is just part one of that conversation. Please tune back in for part two of the amazing conversation that I got to have with Lisa Bauer. To wrap up, I want to thank you for your time. I hope the ideas discussed today have left you feeling excited and energized. As I build both my business and my life, I value the support and feedback you provide. I would love for you to reach out to me to let me know what you think, give me ideas, or just to connect. Please don't forget to subscribe and also share with a friend. Until next time, go create something wonderful.